So I've always thought that the reason I like working on Roadshow rather than other programs is that we just make everyone's nanas happy. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty much it. Like not, yeah. you know, we're not cutthroat or, you know, journalism like frontline. Everybody's learning. It's a form of escape and we're not talking about anything too ugly. Yeah. But then sometimes the FBI calls. Can be talking about that, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. I like it when we talk about the grandma stuff, and we were just talking about the grandma stuff. But yeah, yeah. I guess that does happen. Yep, it does. They sent me a VCR tape. Oh my God! Of the I was upset. <laughs> Antiques Roadshow. He was frantic. <laughs> but that's what's still in the file at the FBI. I'm Adam Monahan, a producer with WGBH's Antiques Roadshow, and this is Detours. Today's show, that time the FBI called. Funding for Detours comes from American Cruise Lines, proud sponsor of Antiques Roadshow. On a journey with American Cruise Lines, travelers experience the maritime heritage and culture of the Maine coast and New England islands. Their fleet of small cruise ships explore American landscapes, seaside villages, and historic harbors, where you can experience local customs and cuisine. To learn more, visit AmericanCruiseLines.com. Ancestry can help you discover your origins, build a family tree, and search historical records, giving you more ways to learn about your family's past and connect over their stories. Visit Ancestry.com to learn more. Take us back to Omaha in 2004, and what showed up at your table? (laughs) Well, first of all, 2004, man, that's a lifetime ago. You're asking me to go back and dig up ancient history. (laughs) This is our longtime appraiser, Wes Cowan. A woman came in. This is harmless. Her name is Sally Guest. Painless, too. We'll all be over in just a few minutes. Okay. She brought in a very interesting daguerreotype. That's D-A-G-U-E-R-R-E-O-T-Y-P-E. Daguerreotype, or DAG for short. The daguerreotype is the earliest commercially viable photograph uh, invented in 1839 and till the mid-1850s, was the way that you had your picture taken. Including this picture. Tell me about this. Where'd you get it? Well, I found it in Walnut, Iowa, a town of about 750 people, and a little junk shop slash antique shop. She handed me the leather case, and I can remember opening it up, and, you know, my heart sort of stopping for just a short second because I was looking at a portrait of a very famous American. And it was the daguerreotype of Edgar Allan Poe. The writer, Edgar Allan Poe. And what'd you have to pay for it? $96, including tax. 96, including tax in Walnut, Iowa. I want to tell you that if I had this in my auction, I would estimate this daguerreotype somewhere between thirty and $50,000. Oh, wow. So as usual, we make Nana's happy. Now I really like it. Our guest gives a good reaction, and that's that. 
great to see it. Thanks for bringing it in. Thank you. <laughs> About a year later, this appraisal airs on TV in our ninth season. And that's when my boss, Marsha Bemko, gets the call. Do I have to tell the whole thing? Yeah, I guess I do, huh? You this have is to the tell the, the next part of the story of, of who, who came knocking at the door. <laughs> who came knocking at the door after that was, um, well, the FBI. You, your heart does drop a little. You are wondering, hello, what do you want? <laughs> yeah, why are you calling Hello, me? why are you calling Could, here? <laughs> and what did you learn? What did we learn about the Dick Hey, what we heard about that at that point was, um, hey, you aired something that didn't belong to the person who brought it in. Now, keep in mind, this all happened back in 2004, 2005. It's old news for Marsh and I. Except that until I started asking around for this podcast, we never actually knew how the FBI got wind of this daguerreotype at all. Here's how it happened. When the segment aired, I got a call from Denise Bethel. I'm Denise Bethel, and in 2006, I was the head of the photographs department at Sotheby's in New York City. She's a great, great friend of mine. And she said, Wes, I think you should talk to Michael Dees. Uh, my name is Michael Dees, and I am the author of a book called The Portraits and Daguerreotypes of Edgar Allan Poe. And can you, uh, can you tell us how you first came to know Michael Dees? My first job out of school was curator of the Poe Foundation. In Richmond. Which is my hometown. Still with us? In the 1970s. Michael Dees was working on his book. And uh, she was a tremendous help with, to me with researching the book. Fast forward 30 years. I remember when the episode aired on Antiques Roadshow. And the next day, Michael Dees called me at Sotheby's. He was frantic. I didn't really know who to talk to. He called me because he very much wanted to get in touch immediately with Wes Cowan. And I knew if anybody could get through to Wes, it would be Denise. <laughs> she said, yeah, uh, here's Michael's telephone number. And so I called Michael and he said, Wes, look at these pictures. Look at the scratch. Look at the abrasion on the face. There's a fingerprint on the forehead. There's scratches on the face. They're identical. And he looked at them and after a certain amount of time, he said, oh my God, you're right. What Michael realized is that he knew this daguerreotype, and he knew who it belonged to, and it wasn't Sally Guess from Walnut, Iowa. It belonged to a private social club made up mostly of theater and film types called the Players Club. A very old club in New York. But what is strange is that the Players Club never actually called the FBI. They didn't even know the daguerreotype was missing. Adam, I don't know what possessed me to do this, but I did call the FBI Stolen Art Division. It was Michael Dees. Yes. So we're going to stick with Michael here for a minute, because as it turns out, he's really the key player in all this. Well, I'm an illustrator and a painter by profession. Um, and when I was in art school, I was very fascinated by Poe, and in particular by his visage and how he looked. It's a very haunting, brooding face. And with no particular goal in mind, I started collecting pictures of Poe, trying to figure out what he really looked like. This curiosity soon grew to an obsession. It became eventually my goal to locate every known, authentic picture of Poe. And what Michael learned through this research about Poe and about his portraits are key to understanding the rest of our story. 
might help to explain this. The daguerreotypes are one-of-a-kind images. They're unique. First of all, the daguerreotype process produces only a single image. There's no negative preserved. Um, there's no negative involved at all. Unlike, say, a photograph, which can be reprinted again and again and again. It is a highly polished sheet of metal, copper coated with silver and polished to the point that if you look at a daguerreotype, you will see your own reflection in it. All you have to do is add a bunch of nasty chemicals, notably mercury vapors, and that reflection can be fixed into the plate itself. It is as if a mirror could be frozen. Okay, let's bring Poe into the picture here. He was born in Boston, and both his parents were actors. This was 1809. His father abandoned the family when he was about one year old, and then his mother died when he was three. The boy winds up living with a wealthy merchant in Richmond. Named John Allen. This is when Edgar Poe becomes Edgar Allen Poe. But that parental relationship doesn't last either. John Allen pretty much disinherited him. So at 18 years old, Poe finds himself broke and very much on his own. Amazingly, that's when he publishes his first collection of poems. He is the only American writer of his era to try to make a living solely out of writing. Almost all of the contemporaries, including Longfellow and Thoreau and Emerson, they all had supplementary incomes. Poe was the only one who said, I'm going to do it with my pen. In order to do that, he did take on a series of jobs working as an editor, um, contributing to magazines, writing about anything he could, including furniture, <laughs> landscaping, theater, and science. He wrote these words in January 1840. The instrument itself must undoubtedly be regarded as the most important and perhaps most extraordinary triumph of modern science. This is Poe's review of the daguerreotype. For in truth, the daguerreotype plate is infinitely, and we use the term advisedly, is infinitely more accurate in its representation than any painting by human hands. Now, by the time he writes this in 1840, Poe has had some moderate success with a few of his short stories, but he remains largely unknown. And in 1845, he published The Raven, which made him an overnight success. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly... It's hard to imagine what the power of a poem in 1845 was, but it was reprinted over and over in newspapers and magazines, even in textbook anthologies. Take from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And sadly, Poe made $20. Off the raven? Yes. Wow. But it also made him a celebrity, and people would recognize him on the street. There were school children would point him out, um, and daguerreotypists would seek him out. People suddenly wanted pictures of Poe. The timing here is quite remarkable. Remember what Wes said earlier, that the daguerreotype was basically made obsolete by the 1850s. Poe, however, died quite young in 1849. And so he has this brief experience of celebrity in his life, which just happens to coincide with the brief popularity of the daguerreotype itself. And his daguerreotypes are considered amongst the most highly prized daguerreotypes in existence. They were taken 
very late in his life when he was uh, in a very dark place um, emotionally and his health was poor. And there is a, a distinctly brooding quality that they have. It's very haunting. And I think in a great way, the images of Poe have contributed a lot to the mystique around Poe's name. Not only did he write these very dark tales and these beautifully lyric poems, but he looks, <laughs> he looks like the quintessential tragic poet. They're hypnotically beautiful pictures and exquisitely rare. This last point is important. There are not that many of these things. We know for certain that Poe sat for his daguerreotype on six occasions. Those six sittings produced eight daguerreotypes. Eight unique images. That's it. The image that appeared on our show is the last of these. It was taken two weeks before his death. And amazingly, we know its entire story. Uh, Poe was walking down Main Street in Richmond, Virginia. The daguerreotypist saw him and said, please come up for a photograph. And Poe said, I am not dressed for it. But he persuaded him and sat him down, took one plate, then took another and straightened his hair a little bit. You can see he's wearing a sprig of holly in his lapel. It's very touching. The daguerreotypist Abbott Pratt was apparently quite pleased with this second image and kept it in his shop. He exhibited it with a, a sign saying the last photograph taken of Edgar Allan Poe. Then just a few years after Poe died, a journalist in 1854 was passing by and went upstairs and said, could you sell that to me? And Pratt said, no, but I'll gladly make a copy for you. Should mention here that even though daguerreotypes are one-of-a-kind images, with the right skills, they could be copied. So Pratt took it out of its case and then made another daguerreotype of the original daguerreotype. Basically, he took a picture of the picture. This is the first known copy that was ever made of a Poe daguerreotype. It is sublimely good, and it was made by the original daguerreotypist. The passerby took his daguerreotype home. And he kept it in his possession for 40 years until, I think, 1890 or so. And then he donated to the Players Club. Which is exactly where Michael saw it almost a century later. In uh, 1981. And I do distinctly remember sitting in the bay window of this beautiful building on Gramercy Park, realizing I was holding a piece of history. It was the first time Michael had ever held a Poe daguerreotype, so needless to say, it made an impression. And this is why he knew with absolute certainty that he had seen this daguerreotype when it appeared on TV. Fingerprint on the forehead, the series of scratches on the face, there's no way there could be two daguerreotypes with those same anomalies. But it gets better, because Michael knew this daguerreotype was missing before our show even aired. That's because when Sally bought it at the antique shop in Iowa, she wrote to the Poe Society of Baltimore to tell them about it. They in turn sent the image to Michael, who at this point is like the guy to talk to about images of Poe. And I immediately recognize it. So he calls the Players Club and asks if by chance maybe they sold it. And they said no, but we'll check. And they looked and it turned out they, it was missing. <laughs> well, look no further, Michael said. It's in Iowa. And, you know, they said would, they would take care of it. But a year later, my phone started ringing. Friends of his had seen a promo for our episode, which promised this rare Edgar Allan Poe daguerreotype. And I was mystified because there are just not very many of them. 
but I tuned it in, and when I saw it... It is a daguerreotype of Edgar Allan Poe. My jaw dropped. Calls the Players Club again. And said, you didn't get it back? <laughs> and they said, nah. I asked them why, and they felt it would cost more to litigate than it would be to just um, to let it go. And I was... I was upset. (laughs) (laughs) After the break, the FBI steps in. I didn't think it was going to turn out to be stolen, but it did. I do recall that this case was the only case in my career that was opened and closed by telephone. This is Johanna Esposito, a 22-year veteran of the FBI, which includes a few years with the Art Crimes Division. So it was a phone call that had come in. And I assumed that they were just going to brush me off. I honestly thought it was going to be a mistake when it first started. Uh, I remember Johanna saying, this is what we live for. We love this stuff. So Michael sends Johanna a VHS tape. That's where it started, actually. And somewhere in FBI evidence is a VCR tape of an Antiques Roadshow program. That is correct. I feel honored, I guess. I think you should. (laughs) Johanna's next call was to Sally Guest, the woman who had brought the daguerreotype to our event in Omaha. I did that actually through your show. And Sally agrees pretty much right away to give the thing up. And uh, that's when it got a little sticky. Because I think at that point, the daguerreotype was with Wes Cowan. Re-enter appraiser Wes Cowan. So. (laughs) You see, a few months before all this went down. I got a call from Sally and she said, well, I would like for you to sell it. Keep in mind, Wes runs his own auction house. So I said, great. And uh, she sent it to me. And that's where the daguerreotype was when. I got a call from the FBI. Did you say like, listen, this can go one of two ways, the easy way or the hard way? (laughs) I don't think I've ever said that in my career. (laughs) An FBI agent from the Midwest office came to the office. Do you recall how many henchmen Wes had guarding this piece when you got there? After they saw the SWAT team arrive, (laughs) they handed it over with no no fighting. That's just kidding. One agent. (laughs) They retrieved the Edgar Allan Poe daguerreotype, and it was no longer in my hands. But they would not return it to the Players Club until I came to New York to authenticate it. Re-enter daguerreotype expert Michael Dees. And it was very dramatic. I felt I was in an episode of Law and Order or something because they took me into a very small room at the Players Club. The two agents from the FBI were there. They put down on a small table this velvet-lined object, and they opened the velvet up, and it was, in fact, the daguerreotype that had always belonged to the Players Club. And I said, that's it. And they said, okay. Wow. That's, that's just <laughs> unbelievable. I can't. <laughs> that's amazing. So what I, I just really, that just like such a sweet story. Cause like that's the grandma story that's even behind the scenes. The truth prevails and they get their jag back. I yeah. love that. Again, my boss, Marsha Bemko. Everybody's happy, except for the guest who's out 96 bucks and the dag. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, so the lesson to any future Roadshow guests is don't bring anything that you think could be stolen. 
Yeah, because if you do, yeah. somebody knows. Yeah. And they're watching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hang on a minute. Okay, so there's actually a little more to this story. Re-enter former head of the photographs department at Sotheby's, Denise Bethel. The daguerreotype was offered in the Sotheby's October auction in 2006. Because after all that, the Players Club decides that they're going to sell the daguerreotype. To my chagrin. Back to Wes Cowan. They consigned it to my good friend Denise Bethel at Sotheby's. Who, of course, is also the person who reached out to Wes to tell him it was stolen in the first place. We put an estimate of thirty dollars to $50,000 on the daguerreotype. And uh, when it came up for sale a few months later... It was very crowded, and there was a whole burst of bids for it. That's Michael Dees again. He told me that at the time of the auction, there had not been an image like this up for sale in decades. It was 1973. A daguerreotype of Poe went up for auction. It set the world's record for a single photograph sold at auction. So for serious Poe collectors, this was literally the chance of a lifetime. And lo and behold, the final price was $150,000. About three times the original estimate, sold to a private collector who managed to outbid the National Portrait Gallery. Yeah, so just to just to sort of put a circle on this, my friend calls me to tell me I have a stolen daguerreotype. We return the daguerreotype, then the people that own the daguerreotype consign it to my friend, she gets a consignment and sells it for $150,000. Don't worry, they're still friends. Denise Bethel, I'm still pissed off at you, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's well done there, Wes. <laughs> Uh, do you have any questions about this this dag today? Is there any questions you have in this that's missing in this story, this whole story? Yeah, you know, I, I, listen. The thing that I that just keeps coming back to me and coming back to me is how did it get to Walnut, Iowa? Ah, yes, that, Michael, Adam. It's been uh, 15 years. I'm still scratching my head. Johanna, anything? Years had gone by, and that pretty much set the stage for the impossibility of any sort of tracing of this piece. So the FBI never learned much about the theft itself, except to confirm that it took place sometime between 1981 and 2004, and that Sally, our television guest, had nothing to do with it. Beyond that, the case is cold. But Wes has got a theory. I, I can't say that I know who, who who stole it from the Players Club, but I've got a pretty good guess. I mean, it's just a it's just a, a hunch that I have that it was taken by. And we'll save that hot tip for the FBI, or maybe season two. So. That I sing, they don't help half as much as you do when you lay your calm, gentle ways and bring my mind to the eye. I know you're. So
Detours is a production of WGBH in Boston and PRX. Our producer and sound designer is Ian Koss. Our assistant producer is Isabel Hibbard. Nina Perzuki is the managing producer of podcasts at WGBH. And Marsha Bemko is Detours executive producer. I'm your host and senior producer, Adam Monahan. Our theme music is Once in a Century Storm by Will Daly from the album National Throat. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. <laughs>